0: Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord Jesus, how amazing you are. And we just thank you, Holy God, for this great salvation. Father, Son, Spirit, for for the work that you have done to save simple people like us. And we thank you that in your great kindness, Father, you have purposed uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us this word The scriptures, the Bible, and all of it centers on Christ. Helps us to understand who he is and this great redemption that is in him. So we ask that as we gather together around it this morning and continue this time of worship, worship through study now, as we gather together around your word. um, Father, we ask that you would bless us with understanding. Holy Spirit, we know this this is your ministry. Your ministry is to take... This word that you have inspired and illuminate for us, uh, helping us to see and understand, but not just to know the facts, but to see the significance of these things for our lives. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that y- your ministry would be active among us. Help, help me as I preach this. Um, help me to think clearly, to speak clearly, to be in step with you as I preach this morning, and help that also to be true of all of our hearts. That as we listen. That we are in step with you and that you are the one leading us, teaching us, uh, really driving these truths into our hearts. Help us to truly be the people of Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know this, but finding balance, finding balance in life uh, is a challenge. Finding, Finding balance in life is a challenge. Actually, it can be a little bit of a battle at times. Uh, we, we battle to find balance in our schedule, balance in our diet, balance in our budget, balance in how we approach the way we use time. Finding balance can be a challenge. And often we experience this challenge in our approach to balancing work with rest. Um, some people just throw themselves into their, their jobs and they work hard, uh, they like to get things done, and when they lay their head on the pillow at night, they want to make sure that the day wasn't, quote unquote, wasted. They're all about accomplishing. However, sometimes in their pursuit to accomplish, a lack of balance comes in. And that lack of balance starts to create problems. Those who overwork can end up exhausted. They can end up burned out. or well, worse, they can end up alone. Alone because they spent so much time pursuing getting things done that they neglected relationships. We all have to remember that we, we are not the ones who are omnipotent, right? We are not the omnipotent one. Uh, there is one who is self-sufficient. There is one who is all-powerful, and that one is not us. Amen? Instead, we, we are his creatures, his creation. We are creatures. We are dependent creatures. So we, we need rest. We need relationships. We need balance. But again, finding that balance is hard. Maybe we say, well, well, I know I need to rest, but I'm not, not good at it. Not good at resting. We just can't let ourselves catch our breath without feeling guilty about all the stuff that we're not, we're not getting done. Or maybe we're not sure how to rest. Uh, we struggle to really engage in our relationships or to just enjoy the moment. Or to not define ourselves by what we've just accomplished in the last 15 minutes. We're not sure how to rest. Or, or maybe, here's the thing, once we start, getting re- we start resting, we, we struggle to stop. <laughs> you know, we don't want to get up off the couch. We don't want to get up out of bed. We don't want to leave the cozy confines of just chilling in those relationships and get back to the grind of accomplishing things. So finding that balance, finding that, that rest-work balance can be a challenge. This morning, I bring all of this up. Because this, this struggle to find that balance between rest and work is not just something that we experience in the realm of job, in the realm of family. It's also true in a much deeper way in our spiritual lives, in our spiritual lives. You see, when it comes to our spiritual life, there are aspects of work and aspects of rest that affect us deeply. Aspects that are, are very serious and aspects that when, when out of balance Aspects that can lead to ruin. And I'm not just talking about the ruin of burnout or exhaustion. I'm talking about a lack of balance in our lives that can have eternal consequences. When it comes to our spiritual lives, and what I mean by our spiritual lives is who we truly are before God and how we truly are with one another. Um, that, That reality of who we are deep down, who we truly are before God and how we are with one another. When it comes to our spiritual lives, having the right kind of balance is critical. And it involves a balance of rest and work. You see, finding balance in the Christian life involves both resting and working. But maybe not the resting and working that we might expect. Let me explain what I mean. Just like with a workaholic... Uh, when it comes to our spiritual lives, there are those who just throw themselves into working for it. They just throw themselves into working for it. They, they, they find a system, a religious approach, and then they go after it with gusto. They learn all the rules. They embrace all the terminology. They, they try to jump through all of the right hoops. They become all about accomplishing. They think that when it comes to who we are before God and who we are with one another, that spiritual life... They think that the place to start is with working really hard. And brothers and sisters, that's, that's really what's going on with most of the religions in the world. That's really what's going on with most of the religions in the world. People find a system, a religion, and they work it. They work hard to achieve enlightenment. They work hard to accrue merit. They work hard to earn salvation. Their life becomes all about accomplishing becomes all about giving to get about working really hard to be to be spiritual but then here's what happens people start to get frustrated and burn out with that approach and so what they do is they look for a way to find some kind of balance some to find some kind of rest but they too as they aim at rest they often don't know how to rest or, or they swing the pendulum too far in the other direction so when it comes to who they are before god and how they are with one another they end up just just giving up They end up giving up on spiritual pursuits. They end up giving up on holy activities. They end up giving up on acts of godliness. They figure, what's the point? Or I'm sure it'll just all work out somehow. They go from working for it to not working at all. And so finding this balance, this rest-work balance, can be a challenge. And this was the challenge that was facing the young churches in the region of Galatia. They too were struggling to find that rest, work, balance. So go ahead now and open your Bibles. Hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. And turn over to the book of Galatians. Let me show you this. Let me help you understand this struggle. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Now, as those of you know who have been with us throughout our study of Galatians... Uh, the Galatian churches had a problem with legalism. Actually, legalism was running rampant through those churches. But remember that those churches, the churches in Galatia, they didn't start that way. Uh, these Galatian churches, which were located in the ancient Roman cities of Iconium and Lystra and the city Antioch and Derby, those churches were started by the great apostle Paul, the missionary, the apostle Paul. And he and his missionary companion Barnabas had evangelized those cities, and they organized the new believers into local churches. And all this took place during Paul's first missionary journey recorded for us in the book of Acts. Actually, you can find it in Acts chapters 13 and 14. However, after those churches were planted, and Paul and Barnabas returned home after that first missionary journey, went back to their sending church, uh, some new teachers came to town. Some legalistic teachers came to town. And these teachers, we've talked about this, but these teachers, they were Jewish like Paul. They said they believed in Jesus like Paul. But the gospel that they were preaching wasn't at all like Paul's. Instead, these new teachers were all about working a system. They're all about working hard to try to earn God's favor. You see, they taught these primarily Gentile churches that in order to be truly accepted by God and to truly become part of the, the people of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ... They said to these Gentiles, first you need to become Jewish. First you need to become Jewish. They argued that you needed to embrace the old covenant system. Specifically, that you needed to accept the old covenant identity marker of circumcision. And then live by the old covenant rules found in the Mosaic law. So these new teachers were preaching a system of works. That was their spiritual approach. Work really hard in order to truly be accepted by God. And the sad thing is, these new Christians were accepting it. The Galatians were buying this. They were buying this. That's why Paul writes this letter, this very impassioned, very concerned letter. He was concerned that those in these Galatian churches were abandoning the true gospel and turning to some other gospel, the gospel of legalism, the gospel of works. But as the apostle addresses that issue throughout this letter, he's also very aware Uh, of a dangerous reaction that could take root in the churches in Galatia. A dangerous reaction that could take root in the churches in Galatia because of his correction. Let me explain what I mean. You see, in this letter, Paul pushes against the the legalism that was rampant there in, in Galatia by showing them that we are not justified by what we do, but simply through faith alone in Christ alone. We've talked about this, but our only, standing, our only hope of standing before God is justified, is declared righteous. That's what justification means, declared righteous. Our only hope of being, standing before God is justified, is faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen? That's our only hope. That's why Paul's told the Galatians that. He's told them in chapter 2. He says, back in chapter 2, verse, nine, verse 16, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We know this, he says. That's why he also makes clear in chapter 3. That Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was there as a tutor, but Jesus came in order that we might be justified by faith. So our only hope of standing before God justified, our only hope of truly being accepted by God, is not faith in our own works and effort. It's that it is only faith in his. In the finished work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. But here's the thing. Here's the rub in that argument. Listen very carefully. Here's the rub. If Jesus has done it all, if he lived the life we failed to live, if he died the death that we deserve to die, and if he rose again declaring that all the work is finished, he's not still paying for sin in the grave. If he rose again declaring all the work is finished, then what's left for us to do? What's left for us to do? If Christ has done it all, then what's left for us to do now? Now. Now. I mean, can't we just go kick back on a beach, drink a pina colada, and wait for glory? What motivation is there for holy living? What motivation is there for holy work, for pursuing spiritual disciplines and godly habits and selfless activities? If we don't need to work for our salvation, but instead we should rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ then do we need to work at all? And there are some who would answer that question by saying, no, just sit back and chill. (laughs) You're good. Just sit back and chill. And that is the trap of what is called antinomianism. I'll throw a big word at you this morning. Antinomianism. Antinomianism, the word itself means means no, anti-law, namas. No law. And antinomianism is not a new thing. It's actually a belief system that has plagued the the Christian church throughout the centuries. And it is an approach to spirituality that says, "Now Now that I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. My sin is covered by the blood. So what does it matter how I live? Let's go grab a pina colada, chill on the beach, and just wait for Jesus to come. And I bring that up because that trap of antinomianism Presents a very real danger for the Galatians. You see, as they take in Paul's gospel teaching and they, they, try to commit, they try to correct their overcommitment to working for salvation, there's a very real danger of swinging the pendulum too far the other direction and ending up equally out of balance. They can go from spiritual exhaustion, trying to work for God's acceptance, to spiritual apathy, being indifferent to godly living. That was a very real danger for them. And guess what, brothers and sisters? It's a very real danger for us as well. It's very real danger for us as well. It's actually, just to be real transparent with you, it's actually been something that's been on my heart <laughs> and through this study of Galatians. Yes, brothers and sisters, our only hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. We are justified by faith alone. But here's the thing, as has rightly been said, the faith that justifies is never Alone. Yes, we are justified by faith alone. But the faith that justified is never alone. It is accompanied, brothers and sisters, by a certain lifestyle. And that lifestyle is not doing whatever you want. It's not just chilling on the beach and waiting for Jesus to come. There is a balance in our resting and our working. And if we or the Galatians... Miss that balance. We're going to end up in a very dangerous spot. We're going to end up in a very dangerous spot, which is why chapter 5 of Galatians is so incredibly important. (laughs) I've been eager to get here. (laughs) Chapter 5 is so incredibly important because here Paul starts to unpack for his readers a picture of true balance. He gives them here, in a sense, the rest of the story. Here he's going to show them and us how we pursue both spiritual rest... And spiritual work as Christians. He's gonna help his readers not to overcorrect in light of their legalism, but instead to understand true biblical Christianity. And he's gonna do the, that by explaining that the Christian life, listen, the Christian life is marked by both spirit empowered rest and faith fueled work. Spirit-empowered rest and faith-fueled work. And as we'll see this morning, one brings a life marked by confidence. And the other, a life characterized by love. But but this is the balance that is needed in our Christian lives. Spirit-empowered rest leading to a life of confidence and faith-fueled work. Producing a life characterized by love. And understanding how we pursue that balance is what we're going to aim at in the rest of our time this morning. So, now having unpacked for you the big picture, let's dive into the specifics of our text. Let's start with what I'm describing as a spirit-empowered rest. Spirit-empowered rest. Here in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, Paul is really addressing what does the Christian life look like? What does the Christian life look like? And now remember, this is an important question there in Galatia. These legalistic teachers had come to town and they argued that the Christian life, life looks an awful lot like life lived under the Mosaic law. That's what they said. That's what it's supposed to look like. Just kind of like Judaism. But throughout the letter, Paul's pushed back on that answer. And in the opening verses of chapter 5, we really see the culmination of Paul's pushback. He makes it very clear that these legalists answer, that's the wrong answer. Remember what he's told them? Look, let's look back at what we've we said the last several weeks. Start back at verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, and just follow along with what Paul writes here. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, in other words, if you live like these legalists are telling you to live, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And what Paul's making very clear is that the approach of these false teachers is a Christ nullifying, law burdening, grace abandoning approach. It's not true Christianity. It's not the way that Christians live. But what is the way that Christians live? Well, look at verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And here Paul is telling them, in a sense, not that, but this. Not that! But this, it's not circumcision and law-keeping. That's not what the Christian life is supposed to look like. That that nullifies the finished work of Christ. That's cutting yourself off from grace. That's spiritual suicide. That's a picture of failing to grasp the Christian life. But those who do grasp the Christian life, Paul says, they don't look like that. They look like this. They look like verses verses 5 and 6. Now, look at the text here. Notice this phrase in verse 5. Which the ESV brings across as we ourselves. We ourselves. And the ESV does this. It adds that word ourselves to the word we. Because in the original language, that word we is emphatic. It's like Paul is is, uh, highlighting it, italicizing it, drawing a circle around it. He's emphasizing that word we and he's doing that because he's drawn a sharp distinction. He is saying, We Christians are not like what's described in verses 2, 3, and 4. We don't nullify the work of Christ. We don't live by the law. We don't dwell outside of grace. Instead, we Christians, we ourselves, are characterized by this picture that we see here in verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6, this is a picture of what the Christian life looks like. And look at this picture. The first part of this picture that Paul shows us is that we Christians wait. We Christians wait. Look at the text. It's the main verb there in verse 5, that word wait. Paul says we ourselves wait, or if you have a New American Standard, are awaiting, or an NIV, we await. But, but everything else in this verse, verse 5, and we're going we're gonna to get to all the everything else, <laughs> but everything else, it's built off that main idea, that main verb. We ourselves, we Christians Wait. You say, oh, that's nice, Ryan, but what in the world does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean? We wait. What is Paul talking about? What is he getting at by saying true Christians wait? Well, there's there's a little nuance in this word wait that we might overlook with just a casual reading of this text. You see, when Paul uses this verb, it's translated here as wait, when he uses it here and when he uses it in other places in his letters, He's using it as an eschatological term. And what I mean by that is he's using it as a term that has to do with the end, the culmination of all things, the eschaton. And and you discover this as you look at Paul's other uses of this verb. Let me just give you some examples. Over in Philippians 3.20, Paul writes this. Listen. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await, same Greek verb, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know this world is not our home, we're waiting for something else in the future, we're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? So Paul says, we wait, and he's using the same verb. Then over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, you're not lacking any gift as you wait, again, same verb, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talking about revealing, he's talking about that, that future coming, of that future return of the Lord in his glory, when his glory will be revealed. Over in Romans 8, Paul repeatedly uses this term. He says in verse 19 of that chapter, for the creation waits, same verb, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then, Further, in verse 23 of that same chapter, he writes, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What I want you to understand is really every time, every single time that Paul uses this verb, this term wait, he's talking about awaiting future events. Awaiting eschatological realities like the return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth our future resurrection. So he always uses this term talking about eschatological realities. Future end time, consummation realities. But notice our text. Notice the eschatological event that he's describing here. He says that we Christians... Wait for righteousness. Or actually, he puts it, we we wait for the hope of righteousness. As I'm studying through this text and asking questions, and hopefully as you're thinking along with me this morning, asking questions, a very important question that we need to ask here is, but wait, don't we already have righteousness? Don't we already have it? I mean, isn't that, Paul, isn't that what justification by faith is all about? Aren't we already justified, already declared righteous before God through faith alone and Christ alone? We look at Paul's other letters. Go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense, you already got it. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justification is already done. We are already clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And we stand justified righteous in the eyes of God. So why then is that something for which we are waiting? Well, because of what Paul says here, it seems that there's a sense in which this already is also a not yet. This already is also a not yet. There is a sense in which this righteousness is something for which we also are still waiting. We have to ask the question, in what sense are we still waiting? Waiting for it. Well, what we are still waiting for, brothers and sisters, is that moment when we actually stand one day before holy God on the day of judgment and hear his verdict pronounced over us. You see, there's going to be a time, according to Revelation chapter 20, when every single person will stand before holy God in judgment. And what will God say? What will God say about us? Let's make it personal. What will God say about you? Picture yourself in that moment. What will God say about you? I want to help you answer that question with a Christian answer. Let's look at another term that Paul uses here in the text. This term, hope. Look at the text. He speaks of the hope Of righteousness. Now, often when we use that term hope in our in our modern vernacular, we use it in the sense of something for which we wish, right? Something which we wish. There's a strong connotation of uncertainty in our use of this word hope. I hope, she gets me that for Christmas. I hope they get married. They look like they they really belong together. I hope they get married. I've been working hard. I hope I get that raise at work. It's something for which we are wishing. But there's no real certainty about whether or not it's going to happen. That's the way common way we use the term hope. But that's not the way that the Bible uses this term hope. As New Testament scholar Donald Guthrie explains, the word hope in the New Testament speaks of, listen to this, it speaks of a strong assurance. A strong assurance. It's something that we know is coming, just hasn't arrived yet. It is our hope. Think of it this way. Our hope, it's like an anchor for us, fastened in the future, upon which we're clinging in the here and now, okay? It's like an anchor for us, fastened in the future, it's there, it's set, it's certain, it's an anchor fastened in the future, but we're clinging onto it in the here and now. Christian hope, New Testament hope, that hope that is founded on the promises of God, and God doesn't lie, amen? So when he promises something, it's good, right? It's going to happen. But that hope that is fast on the promise of God, it's an anchor. It's an anchor for our confidence. And we cling to it as we await that future to arrive. And Paul here, he's talking about that kind of hope. But again, he describes it here as an expectation, this hope of righteousness. It's a, a future expectation, a future certainty, a future reality for which we are awaiting. And what we are awaiting on that future coming day, that day of judgment, we are awaiting that declaration of Righteous, righteous. What will God say of you on that day? If you are a Christian, your hope, your confidence, assurance is that on that day, you will hear the pronouncement of righteous, righteous. And Paul says that we Christians eagerly wait that day. We eagerly await that day. This, brothers and sisters, this brings me to something that I just found fascinating about this text. Paul is saying here, realize what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that we Christians, we have a joyful expectation regarding the day of judgment. Think about that. For us, it is not something that we fear. It's not a a means to cause panic. It's not even an event uh, which we approach with a certain amount of uncertainty. Instead, it is something that we eagerly, joyfully await. But here's an important question Why? Why do we eagerly await it? How in the world do we eagerly await it? And what I mean is, how can we, we who know, we who know that we are sinners? I want to see you to raise your hand, but since coming to Christ, putting your faith in Jesus, have you sinned? <laughs> Every single one of us, right? We've, we've sinned. We've given into the flesh even after coming to Christ. We know ourselves. We know we're our sinners. So then how can we eagerly await the day of judgment? Is it because of all the good things that we've done? Is that why we're eagerly awaiting that day? Is that our hope? All of our good works, all of our law keeping, all of our trying to work the system. Is that why we're eagerly awaiting that day? That's where these false teachers were selling in Galatia. They said, that's the approach you're supposed to take so you can get ready for that day of judgment. You've got to work all these things. And their approach wasn't novel or new. It's actually the approach of the religions of the world, right? And they teach you, when you get to the end, just hope all the good things that you did outweigh all the bad things, right? There's your hope. But is this the way we wait for the day of judgment, like this, this future coming way in? You know, I, I hope I lost enough this week in the way in. I hope my, all my good outweighs my bad. You know your own heart. You know your life. Knowing that, how could you wait that day with eagerness and joy? Oh, the big way in day, yeah, I'm going to do good. <laughs> Here's the thing, you can't if you go with that approach. You can't. But the good news is that kind of waiting, the waiting for the big weigh-in, that is not Christian waiting. How can a Christian await the day of judgment eagerly? Well, look at the text. Look at the text. Paul says, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. By faith. And what Paul is talking about here is not a faith in our own efforts and abilities. It's not a trusting in us. Instead, he's talking about a faith that rests in God and his promises, all centered in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know this. That's been his theme throughout this entire letter, right? That's been his theme through this entire letter. Paul has told us repeatedly that God has promised that justification does not come through law-keeping, if it's through the law, Paul said, then Christ died for nothing. It doesn't come through law-keeping. It doesn't come through our own efforts. It doesn't come through working system. He said, Paul told us repeatedly, God has promised that justification is found only through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. And we Christians, we Christians, we trust, we expect We have a strong assurance that the day of judgment will prove that promise. It'll prove that promise. True Christians eagerly long for the day when they will stand before God and hear the declaration of righteous. Righteous not because we were the best boys and girls on the block. Righteous not because we deserve it, because we don't, right? We're sinners. But we expect to hear that pronouncement of righteous because Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, lived for us, died for us, and rose again. And our faith is in him. By faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And it's coming. It's coming. What a day that will be. Amen. What a day when all the flock of Christ stands before the throne of God and hears righteous. Righteous because Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep. All glory be to Christ. That is going to be our anthem on that day, amen? All glory be to Christ. I'm righteous because of you and you alone. As we wait for that day, with eagerness, by faith, we do so, notice the text, through the Holy Spirit. Paul says, verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You see, this, this eager waiting, this hope, this faith, brothers and sisters, it's not something that we just work up in our own efforts. It's not something that we somehow generate by our human abilities. Instead, it all comes about through the miraculous and gracious working of the Holy Spirit. He is the source of this faith that has us eagerly awaiting the day of judgment. And he is the one who fuels that faith. How? How does he do that? How does he fuel this faith? Well, he fuels it by showing us through the riches of the word our own weakness and our own inability Time and time again, you read the Bible, right? Just like us, these foolish people. And the Spirit's showing us over and again, don't put your hope in you. Don't put your hope in you. See your weakness. See your inability. And then again, through the riches of the word, he shows us the grace and faithfulness of our God. He reminds us again and again and again and again that we have a God who keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to his children, and he delights to keep his promises to his children. And then the Spirit brings all of this into a culmination by taking us, again, through the Word. Taking us by the hand and leading us to the glorious sufficiency of our Savior. And He continues day in and day out to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and His finished work. The Holy Spirit is the one who who fuels our hope of righteousness by calling us over and over and over again to rest in the finished work of Jesus. You see, the Christian life of spirit empowered rest. Spirit empowered rest, and brothers and sisters, what I want you to understand is that spirit empowered rest it produces us in spirit empowered confidence. We Christians live with a spirit empowered confidence. We don't live life striving to prove our righteousness, living day in and day out in the fear of judgment. No, we have entered into true Christian rest. We ourselves, Paul says, we ourselves, we Christians, we are resting in the righteousness of Christ. And on judgment day, that righteousness will be revealed and our hope will prove true. And so by faith, we eagerly await and we do so through the present and gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this leads to a life of confidence. We Christians should be people characterized by, by peace. <laughs> and I don't just mean bringing peace, but having a spirit of peace, having a spirit of joy. Living in freedom. Our glorious future is certain. What are we so down about? Amen? There should be this joy. So instead of living every moment. Worrying. Wishing. Working to somehow win God's approval. Guess what, brothers and sisters? You already got it. You already have it. We know true rest. Through Christian Confidence. But then, and this is a very important question, where does that confidence lead us? Where does that confidence lead us? And what I mean by that is does this confidence in Christ, this true Christian rest in light of the coming day of judgment, does that lead us to then live however we want? Does that lead us to live however we want? Does it lead us to live unholy, selfish, spiritually lazy lives? Because, hey, guess what? We're going to go for eternity so we can live however we want. Where does this confidence lead us? Well, Paul helps us answer that question here in verse 6. Here in verse 6, right after making clear the spirit-empowered rest in verse 5, Paul paints a picture now of faith-fueled work. Faith-fueled work. And again, Paul here, just like in verse 5, he's answering that question. What does the Christian life look like? What does it look like? And again, he makes clear what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like what the Galatians thought it should look like. It doesn't look like what they thought was important. Looking into the text, Paul writes verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That little phrase counts for anything. It actually translates a word that means has power, has ability. Speaks of something having force, being significance. Or as the NIV has it, having value. But Paul negates that little word. And he says, whether you're circumcised or not doesn't really matter doesn't really matter that's not what's truly important those things ultimately hold no power paul says so why in the world are you making them your spiritual boundary markers they don't hold any power he's actually he's firing a shot at these galatians telling them you have this works part all wrong you think it's all about this circumcision or uncircumcision. it has no value you got his work's part all wrong. He's firing a shot at them. And guess what? Some of us need a shot fired at us. Because guess what? It doesn't matter whether or not a person dresses up for church. It doesn't matter whether or not they're carrying the particular Bible translation that you approve of. It doesn't matter whether they vote along the same political lines as you do. Those are not really the defining markers of the Christian life. And those aren't the defining markers because ultimately, that's not where the power for the Christian life is found. I said the Christian life is about something so much deeper. It's about, look, look at the opening phrase here in verse 6. Look at the opening phrase. For in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul There is saying I'm talking about true Christian life. And what does a true Christian life look like? Well, it looks like a life, mark this, in Christ Jesus. It looks like a life united to Jesus Christ. And, and that's what's really important. That's where the true power is found. And that little phrase, it's so important. Sometimes it's the little prepositions that make all the difference. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Listen to how commentator Leon Morris unpacks this little phrase. He writes, Paul's way of putting this emphasizes the importance A vital fellowship with the Savior. Listen carefully to what he says. The Christian is not simply someone who has heard about Christ and is loosely attached to him. The Christian instead is fully committed to Christ. So wholly committed to Christ that he or she does not merely stand for him or by him. But is really in him. Surrounded. Remember how Paul put it back in chapter two. Remember his testimony in Galatians two twenty. Remember he said, "I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me." You see, this what Paul's describing. This is the glorious reality of the Christian life. This is what is truly important. There is a very real union with Christ as a Christian. It is Christ in me, and I am in Christ. He is the sphere in which I live. He is my identity. He is my reality. And mark this that reality does not produce deadness, it does not produce ungodliness, it does not produce unholiness. Instead, in Christ, faith works. In Christ, faith works. Faith works. Paul says, verse 6, look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith. What's the next word? Only faith what? Okay, sorry, I've lost. You've got to hang with me on this. Only faith working. Working. You see, this faith in Christ Jesus, it is not a dead thing. It is not a dead faith. It's not just some get-out-of-hell-free card. The faith that justifies, brothers and sisters, is also the faith that sanctifies because it is a faith that unites us to a very real person, the person of Jesus Christ. This faith sanctifies. It produces a growing holiness in us as Christians because it is rooted in this very real union with Jesus Christ. Picture it this way, and this is what's going on. Through the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit... The life of Christ is being lived in us. It's being lived out of us right now. Through the spirit of Christ, the life of Christ is being lived out through us now. And brothers and sisters, this is what true Christianity is all about. This is the heart of the Christian life. It's about a life lived in Christ, with Christ. Christ in me and I am in him. You see, Christ isn't just for judgment day. He's for every day. Amen? He's not just for judgment day, he's for every day. And my faith in him is gonna manifest not just on judgment day, but in the everyday, All the little moments. And that ultimately is Paul's point here. Look at this full full statement of verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working, what does it say? Through love. Only faith working through love. And brothers and sisters, that's the work that really matters. That's the work that really matters. Not circumcision, not uncircumcision, not your dress, not what Bible version you choose, not if you voted along party lines or not. Faith in Jesus, this real union with Christ that produces then something very real in us. It produces love. Love. Take a moment, just think about that. Think about love. What is, what is love? What is love? Well, some in our culture, they would define love as strong feelings. Some would associate it with romance, others, sex. But biblically, love is something so much more than this feeling that we fall in and out of. Biblically, love is rooted in God himself. It's rooted in God himself. 1 John 4 tells us that love is from God. And that God is Love. Love is something essential in the character and nature of God himself. But then in John 4, John tells us this. This is John, 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. Just listen. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. John tells us, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So God showed us what love is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world... So that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. The satisfaction of God's righteous wrath for our sins. So God's love. What's love? It's God. It's God is love. So it comes from God. Well, what does this, God, this love look like? What was manifest in Christ. God showed us love. He showed us what love looked like by giving his only son to pay the penalty, the wrath, and the condemnation deserved, that we deserve, so that through him we might live. So what is love? Love is sacrifice. Love is self-sacrifice. Love is self-sacrifice for the good of another. Love is self-sacrifice for the good of another who doesn't deserve it. Boy, that's, that's the part where we really struggle. Well, if they really deserve it, I'll Love is self-sacrifice for the good of another who doesn't deserve it. That's what real love is. And Jesus told us, he told us, brothers and sisters, that this love is to characterize us. This is supposed to be a mark of his people. In the upper room, before he, before he went to the cross, he told his disciples, this is from John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says this, a new commandment I give to, give to you, that you love one another. Listen you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you dress the right way, both the right way, carry the right Bible, circumcised, uncircumcised, what's the marker? If you love one another. And here Paul is showing us in our text. That this love, this work that is to characterize us as Christians, this love flows from faith. In Christ, Paul tells verse 6, in Christ what matters is faith working through love. It is the evidence, it is the reality, it Is the testimony of our union with Christ. But please don't misunderstand this point. When we talk about a union with Christ or union with Christ and love flows out, this is not some kind of mystical, weird thing where, you know, we don't know how it happens, it just happens. Somehow love flows out of this. <laughs> it's not some mir- weird or mystical or complicated thing. Instead, it just comes back to a faith in Christ that works. Faith in Christ that works. Let me explain what I mean by pointing out what keeps us from loving. Brothers and sisters, what keeps us from being loving people? What keeps us from being loving people? What keeps us from being people that, who are willing to sacrifice for the good of another who doesn't deserve it? What keeps us from it? You ready? One word. One word. Here it is. Fear. What keeps us from being loving people? Fear. Fear keeps us from loving. You see, fear says what? I need to protect me. I need to protect me. I need to look out for number one. I'm worried. If I do that, will I be okay? <laughs> if I love that way, will I be Okay. If I sacrifice, will I, give it back? will I get it back? If I love them, will they love me back? If I lose my life, will I find it? I know God says He's got me. I know He says His ways are right and true. but can I really trust him? Fear keeps us from loving. However faith says, what? I know my God. I know my God and I know his love for me. I know my hope is in him because I know Jesus. I am in him and he is in me. Through the spirit, by faith, I am waiting for the hope of righteousness. I am resting in his finished work. I am awaiting a glorious eternity secured for me by the finished work of Jesus. So then what in the world do I have to fear now? The answer is nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Jesus has you. Believe that. Believe that. And that faith will free you to love. That faith will free you to love. You see, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not about working to earn, giving to get. Instead, it's about resting in what Christ has already secured for you through a very, resting in that, through a very real, very daily relationship with him. And from that place of union with Christ, letting that faith work To free you to be a person who loves. And that's the balanced Christian life. That is the freedom of balance. The Christian life is about not about legalism or antinomianism. It's not about working for your salvation or living any old way you please. It's about a spirit empowered rest and a faith fueled love. So as I close, let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. Do you see that balance in your own life? Ask it this way, lots. So I ask that question. Do not think. Well, I don't know. My, I don't know if my spouse sees it that way. I don't know if I see that in my spouse's life. I don't see if I see that in my kids' life. I don't know if I see that in my friend's life or my neighbor's life. I'm not asking what you see in their life. I'm asking what will you see in yours. Do you see that balance in your life? Do you live in that spirit empowered rest? With a spirit empowered confidence, does that characterize your life? Here's an easy way to test it. When you think about standing before God in judgment, does that make you anxious? Does that fill you with fear? Are you worried about getting in? Or do you give testimony to the Spirit's work in you, and by faith, you eagerly wait for that day, knowing that that day will be a day when you will glory in Christ Jesus because your righteousness is secured by Him? Do you know how to rest spiritually? Are you resting in the finished work of Christ right now? Are you living with a spirit-empowered confidence? And if you are, does that confidence manifest in a faith that works? Does it manifest in a faith that works? Do you live with faith-fueled love? Is that what marks your life? Are you daily delighting in your union with Jesus Christ? letting that build you up in that security with him so that that security that drives away your fears, drives away your anxieties and replaces them with joyful, self-sacrificing love. Your faith working through love. Beloved, as I raise those questions, I really want you to think about those. As I raise those questions, if you struggle with the answers that you're getting as you're examining your own heart, let me point you again to the solution. Let me point you again to the solution and the solution's been in everything we've talked about this morning. The solution to finding balance, the balance of the Christian life, the solution to finding balance is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. A few weeks ago, I said to all of you that my desire for each and every one of us is that we see the gospel clearly and we hold on to it tightly. And that's how you find true balance, spiritual balance. It's found in the gospel because the more you see, the glorious reality of what God has done for you in Christ, and the more tightly you cling to that glorious message, you will find your life marked by true confidence and real love. Just the way it works. Beloved, that's, that's the solution. Again and again and again and again, we need to take our hearts back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lay them bare before the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through it we will find... Spirit-empowered confidence and faith-fueled love. Through the gospel, you will come to know the true, ba- the true freedom of balance. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the beauty of the Christian life. <laughs> if it was up to us, especially in our pride, to design it, we would do it completely the opposite. And it would all be about all this boasting and bragging in ourselves but we thank you for the beautiful way that you have designed it, that all glory is to you. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those who are, who are struggling just to see themselves in the light of the gospel. I look at themselves and feel like I'm just a, I'm just a sinner who would ever love me. I just keep failing again and again. I pray, them to see, I pray that you would help them to see that their hope of righteousness is found in the finished work of Jesus. I pray that your spirit would work in a mighty way in them. Blessing them with that faith, fueling that faith every day as they are in your word. As they are beholding again the folly, the foolishness of trusting in ourselves. As they are beholding again and again your faithfulness, your graciousness. The way you love to answer your promises, keep your promises for your children pray day in and day out the spirit would help them to see the finished work of Jesus the absolute sufficiency of our savior and for the people who are here this morning feel like yeah right i got that but if we were to follow them around all week we wouldn't see a faith fueled love we'd see a lot of anger a lot of frustration a lot of selfishness Father, I, I struggle with that too. And I, thank you, I thank you for this text that, that shows us through this union with Christ, this faith in him, that it, that it drives out those fears that, that lead to self-protection, lovelessness, unholiness. And through that very real union with Christ, we learn day in and day out just to trust you to trust your ways, walk in your ways, to truly be people who live a life that shows love to you and love to those around us. And I thank you that we don't do that to get. We do that because we have. So help us to really, by the ministry of the Spirit, understand what we have, not to be people of fear, but to be people who are freed by faith to love like Jesus loved us. Oh, Father, again, I thank you for your word. Bless my brothers and sisters. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.